This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. David Embarris, Associate Professor of History at North Carolina State University. Dr. Embarris is the author of Japan's Imperial Underworlds, Intimate Encounters at the Borders of Empire, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Dr. Embarris, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You recently published this book, Japan's Imperial Underworlds, and in the book, you map the mobility of several marginalized groups across the spatial and social borderlands of the Japanese empire, starting in the Meiji period and taking it up even to the present day. So can you describe who populates these groups, who's in these groups, and elaborate on what tracking their movements around East Asia tells us about the borders and spaces of the Japanese empire? The book is really focused on Chinese and Japanese movements as opposed to the movements of other groups in Imperial East Asia. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is to show that even though we've been given a narrative of modern East Asian history as the fall of the Qing or the fall of China and the rise of Japan, that things are a little more complicated when you look at actual people's lives and encounters. And so what I do is trace out the movements of Chinese networks into Japan. In particular, I'm interested in the movement of Chinese peddlers, particularly from South China, from Fuching uh, on the coast of Fujian province, who come into Japan during the Meiji period. Actually, they start coming in once the treaty ports are opened. As your listeners will probably know, Japan was compelled to sign what were called unequal treaties in the late 1850s that led to the opening of a number of treaty ports. And while the story is often told about Europeans and Americans coming into these treaty ports, the largest group that actually came in were Chinese. And throughout the Meiji period, the largest group in the treaty ports were Chinese. And so I look at not the sort of elite Chinese merchants or employees of European trading firms, but the sort of the lower level Chinese who come in and who engage in petty trade or what some have called globalization from below. And they are restricted to the ports, but after 1899, Japan, which has recovered full territorial sovereignty by this point, Japan issues an edict that basically limits all Chinese to the former trading ports unless they work in particular trades. And one of those trades that they're allowed inland as is peddlers. And so I look at how Chinese peddlers, again, largely from Fuching, spread out throughout Japan and the relationships that they form. And so in using these Chinese peddlers as agents for my stories, I'm looking at how they become involved in the illegal adoption or transfer or smuggling of children into Chinese spaces. So either into the Chinese enclaves in the treaty ports or abroad to China itself. And how this movement of children then becomes a diplomatic issue and a sensationalized media issue and is represented as part of a Chinese threat to Japan, if you will, even though in terms of the actual history of what's going on, what we're seeing is a historical Japanese market in children encountering a historical Chinese market in children in the treaty ports and being brought together. So that's that's one example of these kinds of movements that I'm looking at. Another has to deal with women who cohabit with, they sometimes marry illegally, otherwise they're common law wives of these Chinese peddlers who live with them in Japan, but then accompany them back to China, to Fuching, over the course of the early 20th century, and who are reported to be abduction victims or have been enslaved and are living lives of horrific abuse in Fuching. And the next mobile group then is the Japanese male state agents who go into Fuching to try and rescue or recover these women. And so my study then looks at the encounters among 
Japanese men, Japanese state agents, consular police officials with local Chinese and with Japanese women that they tried to so-called rescue from Fuching in the 1920s and 1930s. So these are some of the mobile groups that I look at. I look at others I can talk about later. But again, the point that I'm trying to make is that the Sino-Japanese relationship is quite complex at this time. And for people on the ground who are living these encounters between migrant Japanese and migrant Chinese, it can't all be reduced to a history of the nation or empire, that different kind of space is taking shape through these networked encounters, through migration flows, that gives us a different feel for what East Asia was like at this time. And by talking about these groups that are kind of moving around in the underworlds of Japan's empire, you're, you're really telling the story that inverts our understanding of Japan's relations in East Asia. And so often we think of the Meiji period as Japan opening to the West and Perry comes in and starts this interaction with Japan and the United States. But you write that this also kind of upends or leads to a repositioning of Japan within a larger Sinocentric East Asian sphere. Yeah, I think that the history of the Sinocentric East Asian order. There's one narrative which says essentially that by 1895 it was over, and the Sinosphere, as it's been called by some, was was a thing of the past. There's been some scholarship that shows that in terms of elite literary activities and other intellectual and cultural activities, that that's not true. Looking at it in terms of the movement of people on the margins, I would suggest that it's also a more complicated story than that. Again, the you know one narrative that we have is of Japan appropriating a kind of Orientalist mode of thinking. Stefan Tanaka's work is the most representative here, and turning China from the Middle Kingdom into Shina, this example of degeneracy in the present that has no real legitimacy as a sovereign state anymore and, and is ripe for taking by more advanced Japan. And there are other manifestations of this kind of Japanese Orientalist thinking at the time. But in terms of the ongoing impact or legacy of the Sinosphere, if we think of Sinosphere not in terms of that high culture necessarily, but if we think of it in terms of these networks of capital, networks of trade, networks of merchants, and networks of migration, then there's an ongoing development. And this is part of a longer history in which Chinese emigrants were helping to shape the, the colonial regimes of Southeast Asia, and then were helping to shape the economic development of Japan in relation to China, Southeast Asia, and other parts of the world. And so I think that there we need to pay more attention to the, the complexity of that relationship and show that China remained a significant actor as opposed to simply an object of Japan's imperial administrations. And one of the things that I also show is that while we have a narrative that tells us that, okay, up until 1894, the relationship between China and Japan was tense. And then in 1895, the Japanese victory over China in the first Sino-Japanese War led to a complete rebalancing in which Japan could now fully claim to be an imperial power and above China. Many of the kinds of illicit or black market or gray market transactions in people or exchanges among people that I described for the pre-1895 period continued or even expanded after that time. And so again, on the ground, in the places where the archives don't often take us, one can find lots of evidence of a much more complicated Sino-Japanese relationship. And it's a relationship that ties into diplomatic relations, ties into economic relations, and also builds its own kind of folklore, which appears in popular literature, in rumors, and in other aspects of Japanese mentality and continues to the present.
as you write, these intimate encounters between people on both sides of the East China Sea lead to kind of a non-state relationship between the two countries. And it's a relationship that, as you write, is a fragmented series of landscapes of fear and desire. On the one hand, it's illicit. On the other hand, it's intimate with marriages, but also trafficking. So can you give us a few examples of those types of intimate encounters that you're talking about? Sure. I said, you know, I keep thinking about this. I said landscapes of fear and desire. I should have said land and seascapes of fear and desire because a lot of this takes place on water as well. But to give some examples, so I mentioned the marriages between Japanese women and peddlers from Fuching. Part of what happens here is that the landscape of fear is is drawn through media representations of Fuching as this barbaric place to which Japanese women are lured with false promises of lives of wealth. And then they're put to work as domestic servants and concubines and are unable to escape from these lives of hell. That kind of representation gets circulated quite widely. Taiwan's Japanese community buys into this very heavily because Fuching and Fujian are very close by, but it also comes to the mainland as well, to the Japanese metropole as well, and circulates there. So Fuching becomes this kind of image of Chinese enslavement of Japanese. But when you get into the actual diplomatic records, people moved to Fuching for very mundane reasons often from various walks of life and were living lives that in terms of the general standard of living would have been comparably lower than in Japan. But nonetheless, many women who went there were surprised that someone would come after them and felt that they had committed to making their lives with their husbands and partners in China and were were perfectly fine doing so. So this is one example of kind of a sensationalized depiction of a landscape of fear and then the realities, if you will, that may belie that representation. Others involve pirates, for example. So one of the women who actually elopes with a peddler to Fuching in the 1920s, a woman named Nakamura Sueko, then elopes again and winds up being the wife of a Chinese pirate boss as they go raiding ships in the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait in the South China Sea. And it's not clear what her purposes were in doing this, but the pirates with whom she becomes involved were actually university-educated Protestant revolutionaries who were out to overthrow Chiang Kai-shek's regime in Fujian and cooperate with the Communist Party to try and effect social revolution. So she gets caught up in the middle of all this. And then, of course, because of that turmoil, the Japanese army based in Taiwan gets very interested in this this pirate group and other pirate groups, and they get involved as well. So we get a kind of a a behind-the-scenes or subterranean set of relationships among pirates and Japanese military and intelligence officials and this Japanese woman on the ground that the media then turns into this very sensational case of a Japanese woman who has taken the lead over a bunch of bloodthirsty Chinese as they pillage and plunder in the South China Sea. And her return to Japan when she's finally deported becomes a very sensational thing that the press plays up to, on the one hand, show what kind of dangerous women are out there who have to be controlled, but on the other hand, to show that, well, the South China Sea is a place where dangerous women could actually do something for Japan. So in looking at the different relations among marginal Chinese and Japanese actors, the Japanese imperialist state, the Chinese state, and the media, we get to see a different kind of land and seascape of Sino-Japanese relations. And if there's one other case I could talk about briefly, it's that of Ando Sakan, who is a, he's a colonial drifter, if you will. Robert Bickers wrote a book called Empire Made Me about an Englishman who drifts off into the Shanghai police force. And there are kind of empire worlds that create opportunities for people. And Ando Sakan is one of those people who drops out of fishery school in Kyushu and wanders up to Karafto and becomes a fisher there in Japan's northern colony, but then drifts down to Taiwan and works in various jobs in Taiwan before becoming a newspaper reporter, an on and off police informant. And then 
tries his hand at being a polemicist. He wants to be kind of known as a colonial expert and writes pamphlets and articles, and that doesn't quite pan out. But then he starts writing travel literature based on his travels to South China and French Indochina. And that begins to open doors for him. And he writes about the lives and conditions of Japanese sex workers in French Indochina, of Japanese medicine peddlers who have tried to make lives for themselves in South China or Southeast Asia. And then of his encounters with Chinese pirates, and this is a, a long-running serial in the Yomiuri newspaper in the early 1930s. And in each of these, he is really trying to work out the relationship between Japanese bodies and space that is not under Japanese control, whether it be these Japanese prostitutes in Southeast Asia who are, to him, examples of a kind of a pure ethnic spirit. They're out to defend Japan and work for Japan by sacrificing themselves, and yet their blood is polluted by contact with non-Japanese, whether it be Europeans or Chinese or, or others from the region. That fear of Japanese women's bodies basically becoming corrupted and losing their Japaneseness drives his writing. And Japanese men who marry Chinese women and settle in China have the same problem of, on the one hand, he celebrates their pioneering spirit for going out at these remote parts of, of China and striking a blow for Japanese advance. And at the same time, he's very concerned that their so-called mixed blood children are gruesome or grotesque manifestations of the, of the mixing of Japan into a larger China, and that these Japanese men don't actually care about it, that they're indifferent to that dilution of Japanese blood and spirit. And with the piracy as well, he, he goes over to try, or he says he went over to try and figure out Sino-Japanese relations in the wake of the Manchurian incident, when Japan's army occupied Manchuria in the Northeast in 1931. But he quickly loses control of the narrative. He, he wants to always be the, the sort of observer who can describe what's going on with authority. And little by little, this narrative develops into one where the pirates have taken control of him. And he is the object as opposed to the knowing subject of the story. So he's really playing around with these questions of the borders of Japanese-ness, the relationship between Japan and China, and the fear that Japan, even though it is a growing powerful empire, the fear that in the South China Sea area, at least, the dream of Southern advance that had been nurtured by Japanese ideologues since the Meiji period is really not panning out, that the Japanese who moved down to the South China Sea area are not sufficiently strong, not sufficiently supported by the state, and perhaps unable to compete with this more primordial Chinese force in the region. And you mentioned that many of these mobile subjects that you're talking about are residing in the Chinese province of Fujian, which is right across the Taiwan Strait from Taiwan. And I remember being struck when reading over the 21 demands issued in 1915 that one of the demands was that Japan would have exclusive rights to Fujian province and even establish some kind of protectorate over that area. And you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, oh, this is just you know part and parcel of this larger land grab that was laid out in the 21 demands. I mean, there must be a connection, right, to the Japanese population there. Is this a type of linguistic-based colonialism or a type of diasporic expansionism? I think that, first and foremost, the, the Japanese population in Fujian is very low in the treaty ports. You know, the largest group of so-called Japanese in Fujian are actually Taiwanese, the so-called Taiwan Sekiming. They would have had legal Japanese nationality in international terms, and Fujianese who have obtained Japanese nationality because that gives them extraterritorial privileges in the treaty ports. Those Taiwan Sekiming are the largest group. And then in terms of the number of what we would call ethnic Japanese in Fujian, you only have a few hundred. So it's not a large population. It's much smaller than, say, Shanghai or Tianjin, or once you get to Dairen and so forth, you get a much larger Japanese population in there. 
it is part of imperialism, of course, of the informal empire of the treaty ports. But the, the Japanese women, for example, who have migrated into Fujian are not seen as agents of empire. They are seen as victims in the Japanese view. They're seen as victims of a Chinese invasion of Japanese home territory that is bent on stealing Japanese bodies. The Japanese response then becomes part of imperialism. It's to mobilize Japanese anxieties about the exploitation of Japanese women into a project to reassert Japanese patriarchal authority over Japanese land and moreover over parts of China. So there I think you do see a kind of imperialist turn with this. But again, the bodies that are moving, the Japanese bodies that are circulating themselves are not depicted as agents of empire. This is different from, say, Japanese women who moved to Taiwan and then wound up marrying Taiwanese men, you know, middle or, or more elite Japanese women who would then get celebrated in the Japanese press as these agents of assimilation of the Taiwanese to Japanese values. It's a different kind of story from that that I'm telling. Are these women that you're talking about then the so-called Katayuki-san, like these Japanese women who go overseas to work as prostitutes in ports in China? No, not at all. Now, Ando Sakan, my travel writer, does, when he visits French Indochina, he encounters so-called Karayuki-san. And again, he writes about them. But the women that I'm talking about, whose records I've discovered in the foreign ministry archives of Japan, are not women like that. They are not going abroad for work. Rather, they have met these Chinese peddlers in Japan and have lived with them and then for various reasons have accompanied them back to their home villages or hometowns in Fuching. Sometimes it's because the husband has to go back and claim land in an inheritance dispute. Sometimes it's because the economy in Japan has gotten tough for Chinese peddlers and they feel the need to go back. After 1931, it's, it's often because anti-Chinese hostility in Japan has gotten to the point that the Chinese community is struggling, and you have several thousand Chinese peddlers decide that they had better go back rather than stay in Japan, so they take their families with them. So these are the reasons that, that women go, but the foreign ministry tended to depict all of these cases within a rubric of abduction. And once they got on the ground, once they sent the officials into these villages, if they could get into the villages and meet women and interview them, they would find that by and large, the women did not feel that they had been abducted. Some might say that what they saw when they got there was not what they expected, but they didn't feel that they had been abducted and many saw no reason to leave. One of the things I was most struck about in your book, especially in the epilogue, when you talk about how this whole Sinosphere is upended once again in 1945, and this poses a whole new challenge for these mobile bodies of going in between. And so you talk in particular about the left behinds. Yeah, the story of, of people left behind in China really has focused on, and probably rightly so, it is focused on the north. It's focused on Manchuria, China's northeast, where the Japanese had sent several hundred thousand settlers. And so you had a large number of Japanese women and children who were left behind in China. And then you saw from the reopening of relations between Japan and China in the late 70s into the 80s, you began to see those stories coming to the fore. And those stories continue to come to the fore. Because the Japanese who I studied had not been part of any kind of official project of emigration and had been seen rather as a problem for the Japanese state and empire than as an appendage of the empire. 
they get forgotten very quickly. And while those who had Japanese household registration documents, so-called koseki, were able to come back to Japan in the wake of the defeat in 1945, there were many who couldn't and who wound up stuck in China and who had to survive not only the communist revolution, but then the great proletarian cultural revolution of the 1960s and, and early 70s as you know people who were identified as Japanese, as possibly Japanese spies, and their Sino-Japanese families were persecuted in this process. And then some of them started to come back later on as well when the relations between Japan and China improved. But they continue to be a different kind of problem from, or a different kind of phenomenon from the, the Japanese of Manchuria or the Chinese Northeast. To give one example, in 2010 in Osaka, two sisters in their 70s were able to return to Japan or come for the first time to Japan, I should say. Their mother had emigrated with her Chinese husband to Fuching in the 1920s, and the family had settled there, had lived there, had survived through the post-war years, the revolutionary years. The husband had been killed, actually, beaten to death during the Cultural Revolution as a Japanese collaborator. But the mother survived and was able to come back to Japan in the 1990s. And then her daughters, after she died, her daughters came back. But they then were able to petition to have 48, I believe, of their family members come with them. And once those family members all came to Japan, most of them applied for public assistance in Osaka. And this became a big scandal where the Japanese right accused the family of basically being a bunch of Chinese invaders who were out to exploit Japan's wealth and goodwill. And this got tied into the question of illegal immigration and fake immigration and accusations that Chinese left behind orphans from Manchuria as well were also faking their documents in order to come to Japan. So those older histories continue to inform the present. And at a time when, you know, Japanese-Chinese tensions over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands were growing, and where in China you had major anti-Japanese demonstrations in 2005, and then again in 2012, these older stories came to the fore again as part of this newer wave of Sino-Japanese tension. You even have the Japanese right publishing books from fairly prestigious publishers with titles like How China is Turning Japan into a Chinese Autonomous Zone and using examples of these kinds of returnees and immigrants as evidence for that. And so these people are almost being victimized again because they're caught between these two states that are going through these diplomatic disputes. Exactly. And one of the things that I want to argue is that when it comes to state-to-state -state disputes or disputes over territory, then you see things in one way. But on the ground level, when people are moving in pursuit of better lives or out of romantic attachments or for other reasons, space takes on a very different meaning. And the boundaries and barriers that states put up to keep people out or keep people in have to be constantly negotiated by people for whom space should have a different meaning where mobility is the sort of the basic characteristic of their existence as opposed to this being confined to one particular territory or another. I mean, this comes up all the time when you, know, you talk to people from China or Japan and say, well, what are your views of the other country? Say, oh, well, I don't like the country, but I have so many Japanese friends or I have so many Chinese friends. And so people are able to make this distinction between the country and the people from that country. And so maybe this is a way to soften those ties. Yeah, well, I hope so. And one of the problems, again, is, though, that people who move get put into certain boxes. They are immigrants, and then they're either legal or illegal immigrants. In the Japanese case, there is a certain kind of Chinese illegal immigrant or some other kind of illegal immigrant. And that takes on all kinds of connotations that, again, impede our ability to see them as people, people who have relationships, people who have the same economic needs as anybody else, and people whose worlds are shaped 
by connections that transcend these you know, historically artificial borders that states have put up. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.